0: Hello and welcome back to Take 97, a film podcast with me, your host, David Ingram. On today's episode, I shall be discussing another top ten list for you guys, and this time it is about movie musicals. That is right, guys, the time has finally come to talk about something that I absolutely love with all my heart. Now, obviously, guys, for people who know me, you'll be like why haven't you done a movie musical episode yet why you love a musical film yes I do that is very true but I like to defy expectations and also there are lots and lots of films out there that I can look at and I need to look at and some that I haven't even looked at at all yet so there are some topics which I am going to be looking at later in the podcast this year, some that are obvious choices, others that aren't so much, but today is a bit more of an obvious one which is more closer to my heart. Uh, it's not something that everybody loves because everybody is, is inherently obvious that lots of people do not like movie musicals because they do not understand how people can just randomly spontaneously burst out into song unless it's part of the plot. Well some of these films it is actually integrated into the plot and they are actually meant to be singing for a reason so there's a little bit of that there but some of them yes are your very traditional hollywood musical style setting where people just sing their feelings because spoken words cannot do the emotion justice so what we're going to do today is we're going to go through a top 10 of my picks of my favorite movie musicals to date at the time of the recording of this um, i'm going to be mentioning a little bit about each of the films just respectively about what they are about, what I like about them, maybe a few negatives here and there, but also particularly what my favourite musical sequence is, and maybe one character or so that I think is a particular highlight from the film. But let's get started without further ado. Before we do though, please make sure you are following us on our social media channels. I think the recording of this episode we have got very close to 700 followers. If we've surpassed it by this point, yay 700. Uh, <laughs> if not, um, please keep following us on our social media channels, particularly Instagram, because I'm very active on there when we put new posts up. Uh, you'll get to see artwork reveals for special episodes, and we'll be also be getting to see uh, a lot more content, so just pictures from the films that we talk about on this podcast, and also polls and quizzes and questions about your opinions of the films that you love in the world of cinema. So let's get started. So I'm gonna go from reverse order, so number 10, all the way up to my number one pick. Number 10 on my list of top 10 musicals. This one, we're gonna take you back to old school classic Hollywood movie musical. And it is from 1952, and it stars the amazing Gene Kelly, Debbie Reynolds, and Donald O'Connor. And this is the amazing Singing in the Rain. Now I had to put this one on here because anybody who is a fan of musicals and the movie musical in particular will love Singing in the Rain. It's just a staple of the movie musical diet as it were. Uh, Singing in the Rain basically to give you an overview it's filmed and released in 1950 so 1952 film and this film is set in the 1920s and it's towards the end of the 20s when the silent era of film Was coming to an end and the talkies were coming into full effect now you may have heard me if you've looked at the decade series or listened to those at all at this point you will have heard me go on about the 1920s episode and talking about how some silent films were prevalent obviously mostly in 20s but towards the end they were becoming less and less popular with the audiences as the talking picture became more of a medium the future of cinema, and sound threatened the very existence of cinema as people knew it. But as it turns out, we love sound, because sound brings us so much joy, and we enjoy it so much, and without sound, we wouldn't have a movie musical, because that's the whole point, the musical side of it. But yeah, it's the silent movie era, I think it's like 1927 or something like that. Uh, It's meant to be coinciding with a time when the jazz singer at Warner Brothers was released, and that is the main, sort of, one of the catalysts anyway, that gives the studio execs at a particular like a fictional studio then I think it's meant to be a version of Paramount or something anyway which has given them a bit of a shake-up to make a talking picture to keep up with their competitors and keep in with the audiences and keep their box office numbers going up. Uh, it stars Gene Kelly, Debbie Reynolds and Don O'Connor as I just said and because you've got Gene Kelly in this film, you're gonna have a lot of singing and a lot of dancing, particularly dancing, and that for me is probably one of the things that highlights for me. Everybody says singing in the rain, you think of Gene Kelly singing in the rain, hanging on to that lamppost and that being everybody's favourite iconic moment. I do like singing in the rain as the song, but the film itself overall is a jukebox musical in a way, because lots of the songs that were used in Singing in the Rain are popular songs of the time. They were just reworked and re-performed by the actors in the film and they're not necessarily you know suited to the plot. They're very random. It takes that whole hatred that people think of movie musicals into consideration of the whole oh, people just sing for random reason. They sing random songs out of nowhere. It's not like a traditional musical, especially in a stage musical, where people sing the dialogue, as it were which we will get to later on, but these particularly are just popular songs shifted into the narrative and they seem to fit fairly well, Uh, apart from with the small exception, I would say, of probably, um, I can't remember what it's called now, but the musical number where Gene Kelly's character, of Don Lockwood, Uh, and his friend Cosmo, played by Donald O'Connor, they go to learn about their diction, so how to pronounce things properly and speak properly for the sound system that they're going to be putting into the films. Uh, But at the end of the day, the film is a musical, and we, you know, Debbie Reynolds, bless her heart, she is the mother of Carrie Fisher. She is amazing in this and to be honest i don't know debbie reynolds for many films other than singing in the rain i'm very uncultured in that way but uh she does a song all i do is dream about you where she jumps out of the cake at a big hollywood party uh her and don lockwood don't get on so her name's uh kathy selden is the character's name Uh, they don't get on very well don and kathy they don't get on at all they rub each other up the wrong way and it slowly turns into a little bit of a weird romance where they then fall for each other even though they don't get on with each other at first. Uh, and Kathy is actually a much better singer than the, uh, <laughs> the infamous Lena Lamont. <laughs> the character who, who talks a little bit like this, you know, like a really squeaky accent and a little bit more New Yorky kind of, I can't do the accent justice, but she's really squeaky. And that's something else, the diction lessons, when she goes, I can't stand him. I can't stand him. It, it really is a good cultural thing, as well as, you know, showing how people, actors in particular, had to adapt to the new system of sound, and it's very comedic at the same time, and like I said, going back to Gene Kelly's iconic Singing in the rain pose, people say, see that, but I see so many other bits, like uh, make him laugh, or laugh, however you want to say it, in the middle of the film, where cosmo is trying to get gene kelly out of a funk as they're trying to make this sound picture this talking picture which was retooled from a silent film but for me my favorite musical number in singing in the rain has got to be not singing in the rain itself but the broadway melody that i think that's what it's called a broadway melody it's a song that very much has been replicated i think in there's the martin scorsese film new york new york in from 1977 there's a really big long musical number called Happy Endings, which is from the theatrical release of the film was cut, but in director's versions and a recut version, the full restored version, which you can view on Blu-ray now, I think the song Happy Endings has been restored. And the way it works out, it tells the story of how Liza Minnelli's character, kinda it's a parallel how she becomes a star, but in a fictional sense as well, how this character in this film gets the fame and fortune and the stardom that she uh, has come accustomed to. Uh, and the same thing sort of happens with the Broadway melody in Singing in the Rain. It's a big, long story piece, and it's all very theatrical-based Hollywood soundstage set. And I absolutely love the fact that, you know, it's so brightly coloured. Uh, you get to see Sid Charisse, a legendary dance performer, uh, compared with the amazing footsteps of Gene Kelly, because Gene Kelly and Sid together are just like, it's on the same scale as Ginger Rogers and Fred Astaire, but on a different level. And for me, it's a storytelling song that's really nice. And they do something similar as well in homage in another film, which I will get to in just a moment, because it is my number nine pick. Uh, but the Broadway melody for me, it really shows off Gene Kelly, all his vocal and tap 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 glory <laughs> as it were he is an amazing showman at the end of the day and a little shout out to a film that not many people do talk about too much but the 1980s film xanadu which stars olivia newton john of greece fame and it also stars gene kelly in it and i think i get chills and goosebumps talking about it, but seeing gene kelly perform as this old faded uh, hollywood dance like, musical movie star or anything like that, I think he's meant to be a movie star, um, it reminds me of the power and energy that you get from Singing in the Rain, and when you watch a Broadway melody, it's full of colour, life, and it's got the essence of the 20s, it's got that prohibition sort of edge to it, and the way they're all dancing in this little underground speakeasy club, and, and then you have that lovely image where Gene Kelly just sort of is superimposed in the front of everything and he becomes bigger than everything and he comes closer to the camera and it's a really strange camera movement they used to do a couple of times in the 50s but it's truly a beautiful it's a dream sequence and it's just their imaginings of what the film that they're making the singing cavalier will be like in the end and you know singing in the rain it may be a jukeboxy musical in a way with a little bit of a storyline which could have not involved any music at all but i really do enjoy it and it's truly an amazing film. But I've gone on about that so much, Uh, so we'll get that one out of the way now. So let's move on to number nine. Number nine is from 2016, so a bit more of a relatively newer text, Uh, and it stars Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone, and people are gonna uh, go, oh, why? Why why is that higher than Singing in the Rain? I'll tell you why it is like a a thing with this film, because it's actually very cliched and musical-like, and, you know, in the tone of a movie musical, but it's very different offbeat in some respects. And this film is La La Land, the 2016 Damien Chazelle film. So like I said, it stars Ryan Gosling as a character called Seb or Sebastian, uh, and Emma Stone as a character called Mia. Uh, Seb loves jazz. Mia does not. Uh, Mia wants to be an actress in Hollywood, and Seb just wants to open his own jazz club. Two of them are a pair of dreamers. It's the present day in Los Angeles. It's, you know, shot beautifully. We have some lovely, lovely, bright, sunny landscapes. We get to see, we get to really appreciate some of the architecture and the nature of Los Angeles itself, both in a touristy, very observant fashion then and in a very subjective and objective fashion. So you know there's a personal touch to it because Damien Chazelle seems to love this and it's very clear from the way the movie's shot and the way the story is told. Visually Damien Chazelle is a very good director. Um, story-wise you could argue it's a bit weak here and there it's not the best film but in my opinion I do like the way that it ends and it breaks the stereotype of a classic Hollywood musical and the Hollywood ending it challenges that. Uh, that's one thing i do like about this but basically it follows these two dreamers uh seb and mia Uh, she wants to be an actress he wants to open his own jazz club they're sort of at opposite ends but (laughs) they meet by chance uh they happen to meet in he's playing uh one of his gigs in a bar or something a restaurant and he gets fired it's around christmas time uh, by J.K. Simmons, of all people. <laughs> Love J.K. Simmons. Uh, but the thing is with this is you see them interact earlier on as well because they meet on the freeway. Uh, he overtakes Emma Stone and says, oh, are well, you too busy chatting away and not paying attention to the traffic. And it's basically just a at-ends, odd-ends, really, to be honest, romance where they go from not liking each other to loving each other very intensely. And then they, you know, Seb goes on the road with an old friend of his, he ends up going on tour as a piano player, or a keyboard player in this case, for this band, so the guy is played by John Legend, <laughs> and, you know of all people John Legend's in this film, and he goes on tour in the, with this band and he spends increasingly less and less time with Mia and their dreams of a joint partnership together as, you know, this couple that are gonna chase down their dreams together kind of ultimately dies down, and the film it's visually beautiful from a color perspective because when you start off you're all sunny and bright and happy the colors in the color palette become very mooted and you go to like i think when you get to city of stars it's very melancholic but it's that crossroads where you get that green bluey sort of haze it reminds me very much of the colors used in the sort of eerie dream sequences in hitchcock's vertigo it reminds me very much of that color palette where it's almost like a dream and you're hallucinating its last sort of hurrah before the end and the purples are very melancholic when um ryan gosling sings the song city of stars again on his own when he's out and about in on the pier in santa monica you know again it's beautifully shot and lovely amazing sort of visual storytelling from that perspective he doesn't really do a lot of talking really to be honest ryan gosling in many films but You know, he does a bit more here, but he's very much a tough guy. You know, if you're used to seeing him in, like, Drive or something like that, then you'll know what his acting style's like. Emma Stone's obviously very emotive and brings out the comedy and everything and the comedic side. But at the end of the day, when you get to the end of the film, it's sort of a slow resolution of these two people, these two individuals... Spoilers ahead for any other films, I'm just going to spoil this now, basically any films ahead in this list, I will spoil some details but try and keep away from them, but in this case the ending of the film is very different from the neoclassical Hollywood ending, and it means the couple don't get together at the end, and they're happy with it, and they're satisfied with it, and the ending shot is we see uh, we two close-ups, we cut between Ryan Gosling's Seb, as he's just performed on stage, a musical symphony of god knows what and we get to see a what if they'd stay together and what if they'd done this and we get to see a big magic instrumental performance then uh, with this accompanying imagery both actual events and also in a dream sequence on like a hollywood set like a classic 50s hollywood set which reminds me very much of the look of the Broadway melody and Singing in the Rain, as I said, the colours and the way the 50s artifice is placed in there, it shows that it is a dream, it's fake because it's a soundstage, it's not real. And then when we come back to the reality, we have that dark purple hue with a bit of blue in there that's very depressing, melancholic, and also somewhat sweet and bittersweet. So I like the fact that, you know, we see the pair of them, we get to see them, they smile at each other and go, yeah, we're all right, we're good. And that's how it ends, and we don't end with them going, oh let's have a snog, we're gonna to be together, and Emma Stone's gonna dump the guy that she's with, and all that, you know, throughout the entire thing, Emma Stone actually dumps the guy that she's with at the beginning of the film for this other guy that's just come out of nowhere, and I'm like, I think it's really strange that, that's one plot point I would say is a bit weird, is the fact that she has a man, and I think it's the same man that actually comes back to be with her by the end of the film, so he he put up with the fact that she was seeing another guy and still stuck around. I just, it it makes no sense to me, but there you go. La La Land overall, the music is great, Someone in the Crowd is definitely my favorite musical sequence, and there's lots of visual storytelling, and I love the different color dresses that we see from like Mia and her friends, and the life of working Hollywood actresses or, you know, wannabe actresses who are trying to break it into the business and the parties they go to and the massive power that you have from and sort of enthusiasm that has been captured on camera you know putting a camera in the water and spinning it around it's a physical depiction of the euphoria then in the moment and it's very dramatic as well because i love the snow that just suddenly falls like i don't know why there's snow but it looks like there's snow or fake snow falling down when we get to the slower part of the film in that um, song, I mean. But like I I said, La La Land is definitely a top-notch film, visually and technically. Not the best story, but the ending I think is worthy of this number nine spot, because it is so different from the rest. Next up though, on my list, number eight. I hear you shiver with anticipation. Patience. Uh, If anybody didn't get that reference, that is from the cult classic 1975 hit from Richard O'Brien, The Rocky Horror Picture Show. Now, this was based on the stage show, The Rocky Horror Picture Show, which came a couple of years before, I think, or even a year before, uh, from the mind of Richard O'Brien. Basically, it was a flop when it first came out. It was seen as very weird and absurd, and what it was trying to do was really show how you can mix a musical with horror with sci-fi and b-movie sci-fi at that as well. Um, it's a cult classic rock parody science fiction musical, that's what it's classed as. Uh, we get lots of references in the opening song from a pair of lips simply on screen. Loads of references to classic horror and sci-fi icons like Claude Rains as the Invisible Man and Fay Ray and King Kong, you know, it's an ode to classic Hollywood but mashing it together in a weird, wacky way. The film itself is basically about a young couple, uh, Brad and Janet, who go out on, I think they've been to a friend's wedding, and then they are driving home, it's raining, and they have a flat tyre, and they have to stop and use a phone at this big mansion, and it's the mansion of a sweet transvestite. (laughs) Uh, And it's also hosting a convention for Transylvanians, which turn out to be people from outer space, not from... Uh, a vampire town, Uh, but the sweet transvestite I'm referring to is played by the one and only amazing Tim Curry, who anybody who knows Tim Curry's work, he's absolutely amazing. I've only really recently started watching a few more things with him in it, like I only really knew him for Rocky Horror and Home Alone 2 specifically, but Clue, he's great in that, Uh, and there's so many others that I could name, but I'm not going to go into too much detail about that now, but the Rocky Horror Picture Show really is Tim Curry's sort of crowning glory, as it were. Most people remember Tim Curry for the Rocky Horror Picture Show. But yeah, Brad and Janet come across this Transylvanian convention, and Dr. Frankenfurter, who's played by Tim, he literally is making a Frankenstein-esque human who is very heavily chiseled, he's blonde hair, and he's wearing nothing but gold lame shorts, or however you say that, (laughs) these very short shorts, and The idea is that Dr. Frank has created a playmate to basically have fun with in a sexual context. And in between, there's lots of songs which relate to the events of the film. This is a proper hardcore musical because it's based on a stage show. So the songs naturally will lead the story. Whereas La La Land, the songs are sort of in the middle and propped in, but they're still leading the story a little bit. But they're a little bit more, you could listen to them on the radio kind of thing. Um, the same thing goes for Singing in the Rain. You can listen to them without the film for context. You can do the same for Rocky Horror, but Rocky Horror, the songs tell the story. So, you know, you've got Damn It Janet, which tells the story of the love between these two young couple, these two young people. Uh, Sweet Transvestite basically introduces Dr. Frank and Verta. The only one really that you can get away with saying that doesn't relate to the context of the story too much is Time Warp, which is basically like a party song, which people will play at parties now to this date, but the time warp itself is the thing that introduces Brad and Janet to the world of Frank and Therta. and we get to Riff Raff and Columbia and Magenta, the minions, so to speak, of Frank and Therta, to start with, and it's just an amazing sort of kaleidoscopic experience. It's very weird. If you like Rocky Horror, you really love it, but if you Think it's very weird, you know. There's only two types of people in this world: you either love it or you hate it. It's very much like Marmite. And then if you're in between, you're probably someone that doesn't like it, but you're trying to understand it, but doesn't really quite register with your mind. Um, but Tim Curry is definitely a character highlight for me. And musical number-wise, I mentioned the Time Warp. Into Sweet Transvestite is probably they're my two favourite songs out of the entire film. I do like Whatever Happened to Saturday Night Hop Tootie, as sang by the amazing Meatloaf, who plays a character called Eddie. I... I'm a little bit of a bad person for saying this, but I prefer... I enjoyed the John Stamos version from the Glee cast cover of the Glee Tribute, when they did it in season two. I think it's because, I don't know, I only like so much Meatloaf songs, and I... I don't know, I can only stand so much of his style then. Um, but then again, nevertheless, Meatloaf does a great job for- he makes such a big impact for such a small amount of time that he has on screen. So, rest in peace to Meatloaf as well, because obviously he's not long left us recently as of the recording of this. But I do feel that Frankenfurter steals the show, and it's just bizarre. By the end of it, you're just thinking like, what the hell's going on here? But that's why I love it, because it's such a good, fun piece of cinema to watch. So, Rocky Horror Picture Show, 1975, cult classic. Uh, that's at number eight. In at number seven is another film that I absolutely adore, and it's directed by one of my favourite directors. He's not done many films, you know, in his lifetime. He didn't do many, but the ones he did were absolutely quality. And that is the 1976, so only a year after Rocky Horror, but it was probably in production around the same time, Bugsy Malone. And that is the Alan Parker film. So Alan Parker, who's done a few, so The Commitments I could mention as well. That's another great film. That's more of a gritty, realistic, film that's got musical elements in it. Midnight Express as well, all those kind of films, but he's a great director. But Bugsy Malone is truly a great piece of fun. It's a musical film that is entirely consistent of a cast of kids. No adults were involved in the acting. Every single member of the cast is played by a child actor. All the main roles, all the sporting roles, all the extras, they're all kids. The cars in it are pedal cars. They're not actual cars. They're just pedal cars, <laughs> which is really funny. And it's set in the 1920s, 1930s, around like the Prohibition time in New York City. It's shot entirely at Pinewood Studios as well on the Shepperton Studios, I think, um, back lot or sound stages, and it beautifully captures. Even though it's not in New York at all, and it's clearly shot in Britain in the external locations, I do think you get a great grasp of a. Um, I don't know, a different world then, a slightly different element, a different side to New York, that back alley sense of um, New York then, that's in its own way very British in this version of it. Um, But yeah, entire cast of kids, directed by Alan Parker, that must have been a feat, I will say that in itself. Favourite musical number, there's a song called Bad Guys, which is sang by the team, so the group of kids, who are the gang of Fat Sam's staccato, who is the leader of one gang of the opposition. So we've got Fat Sam and a guy called Dandy Dan. They are two opposing gangs of New York, uh, two gang leaders, and Sam owns a speakeasy, Fat Sam's Grand Slam, which uh, I absolutely love that intro song. It's such a short song but it's a great piece to introduce the set and really is cool actually to see the kids in this. Fairly adult set, actually, even though it's to scale for them. This lovely 1920s speakeasy, it's such a beautiful thing to look at on film, especially with the lighting. The lighting is very effective in this because it's very showy, uh, particularly for the stage show bits, but at the same time, it's very real and looks very honest and true, even though it's clearly kids playing adults in a way. But I do enjoy that essence of it. Uh, but yeah, Bad Guys, it's very catchy, and they do a version of it, uh, or at least a verse of it in a good guys version for um, You Give a Little Love, which is the closing song of the film. And it shows sort of a nice bit of character development and they go from bad guys to good guys and everybody comes together. It's all very happy and very happy-clappy. So, you know, traditional, everyone comes together and no one's enemies, everyone's friends again kind of thing. But I think overall, you know, this film, it's the 1920s. It shows like prohibition, like sort of gang violence, but in a child-friendly way, I suppose, with musical numbers added in. Overall, the songs fit into this very well, like Singing in the Rain and La La Land, arguably, they could stick out like a sore thumb a little bit, and you would argue that, yes, definitely, whereas Bugsy Malone, like Rocky Horror, but mostly, in this case, they flow very nicely, so I do enjoy the fluidity of the music, and, you know, we all look at this character called Bugsy Malone as well, who's this sort of chancer, this, you know, he, he could have been a contender, he does little on the waterfront quote right there. It's a love story as well between him and his beau, Blousey, and his mistresses were well, Tulula, Tallulah, played by the amazing Jodie Foster, by the way, who, you know, she went on to do Taxi Driver in the same year, and obviously Silence of the Lambs later in the 90s, but uh, she does a really good job here. None of the kids sing, just a quick fact as well. Adults, that's the only sort of, other than the production crew, the adults, we get actual singing voices to sing the songs because they didn't think the kids' voices were up to it. And it kind of went in practice with the whole dubbing which they used to do back in the 60s and the 50s, so it's very in tune with classic Hollywood, even though it's in the new Hollywood movement, so in the 1970s. But at the end of the day, it's an enjoyable film, easy watch. But yeah, Bad Guys is one of my favourite musical numbers, performed by Sam's Gang. Production design and costume design were perfect in this, I think, to capture the era really well my least favourite song is Only a Fool, performed by Blousey. Now I understand the context of it, because it's meant to be a moment where Blousey thinks that Bugsy has let her her down, and she's all alone, and she doesn't have anyone anymore, and she doesn't know which direction her life's gonna go in, because she wants to be a star, but she doesn't know how she's gonna get there, she doesn't even know if she's gonna get there she's thinking of going to Hollywood at one point, but I think, I don't know, the song's so melancholic, I just think the rest of the film is so fun, even the song Down and Out, which is arguably very depressing really when you think about it, but it's very uplifting as well, because of the the way Bugsy and one of his friends bring a gang of people together to wage war against Dandy Dan, and I just, I don't know, it seems very, My Lame Is Tallulah is just a very, Again, it's not. It's a very upbeat, sort of light song. All the songs in this are very light. Even Bugsy Malone, the opening song of the credits where you meet Bugsy and you see this montage of bits from the film. It's somewhat, I don't know, very cool and chill. Whereas Only a Fool is very depressing. So, you know, it's right for the so- story and the scene, but I think that at the end of the day, it's a very depressing song. So it's not, I'm not a fan. <laughs> But um, speaking of depressing, (laughs) it's depressing in a good way, though. I'm moving on to number six in my top ten. And that is the Netflix-released film starring Andrew Garfield, who I may have mentioned already on a couple of occasions. Uh, This came out at the end of 2021, although I only watched this at the beginning of this year. It's called Tick, Tick, Boom, and it's based on the stage show of the same name, uh, which was created by Jonathan Larson, who also was the mind behind... The musical Rent. Now, this actually is very self autobiographical in a way because it follows essences of and elements from Jonathan Larson's life, and the film itself is that's the point of it. But the structure of the film is very interesting because, and that's why I applaud this film for, is the fact that the film shows not only Jonathan Larson, played by Andrew Garfield, performing a show throughout the entire film but we keep going in and out of the show world we see him performing to an audience that's what we open with and we go between that and instances that he's describing musically and we get to see moments actually so actual acted out pieces and we get to see him in the build-up to this musical that is tick tick boom and at the same time we get to see some heartache, some classic jonathan larson themes and we even get to see a few little sneak peek easter eggs of, like, little nods and suggestions, which I'm sure he put in unknowingly for referencing, like, stuff he would later go on to. So, for instance, he has friends who were diagnosed with HIV positive and had AIDS. That is something that he would later go on to explore in Rent itself, in the film Rent, which was released after, uh, way after he died, and in the musical Rent, which he made, and created but was debuted on Broadway just after he died himself and the film itself Tick Tick Boom opens lovely I just it's very gritty and realistic the look of it is very similar to the 2005 film of Rent so I do like that connection there that they've tried to keep the style the same and the music obviously is Jonathan Larson so it will be very similar to that of Rent and other works that he's done. Uh, My favourite song is a bit cliche to say but 3090 uh, the opening song of the film where it's so catchy and it's you know, all about him turning 30 in the year 1990 and him not really looking forward to it and thinking how he hasn't really accomplished anything in all his time on this earth in 30 years and he spent so many years writing this musical which ultimately we learn is actually a failure but you got to learn to write the next one and is nice. I didn't know anything about Stephen Sondheim's relationship with Jonathan Larson, but this is a nice uh, eye-opener. I don't know how true some of it is, but I do think that it is an interesting sort of look at it, and look at the creative mind and the process, and how someone with musical writer's block can really struggle, and... Sometimes your greatest success comes after you're gone, and that is how the film opens. The film opens with a little opening monologue uh, by his girlfriend, stating the fact that he died the night before, or the day before, Rent was due to go live onto Broadway. It was due to preview. And I like the way that the footage is used. We use footage from the real-life production of Rent. We get to see, I think it's the guy who plays Mark, in the film and the show, He makes a speech saying, oh, this is dedicated to Jonathan Larson, our friend, who literally died yesterday and he couldn't be here to see his show open. And at the same time, it's that archive nature of using stock footage in a way which has that similar look, which feels very connected to Rent and the way Rent works. Because Mark, the documentary filmmaker, Mark Cohen, in Rent, the film is bookended by that lovely sense of archive, like Super 8 cine film then. And I love that similarity between the two works. I love that connection. And, you know, 3090 is my favorite song. The realistic look is great. The bits where we go to Tick Tick Boom, are very stage play like, because at the end of the day, we get to see this, you know, on one hand, dramatic performances, but on the other hand, we get to see a very stagey thing, but then we get to see different angles on this stage play. So we're looking at it from an audience's perspective with an enhanced camera lens look that's what we're looking at here that's the ultimate sort of visual look and it's directed by Lin-Manuel Miranda who is the genius behind so many musical things these days so you know keep an eye on him he's one to watch Um, and I yeah like I said the stock archive footage used at the beginning and the end it's very refreshing and it's not often used in films so I really applaud the filmmakers for doing that. Moving on to number five, though. Number five is from 1986, so we're back in the 80s now, and it is based on a 1960 film which was not musical, uh, but this one is now very much a cult classic in its own right, but, yeah, I think it's an amazing film. I've seen Chris Evans wants to get a reboot done of it because I think there was rumours of him and Scarlett Johansson doing some work on a new version of it, but then it got cancelled, but they want the reboot to happen. But personally, I think... The 80s version is the best version, but I'll go down and die hard when it comes to that. But Little Shop of Horrors, the 1986 production of the film. It's a story of boy next door tries to confess his love for work colleague amidst an alien plant plans for world domination. So we follow uh, Rick Moranis as Seymour Krelborn, who is in love with a character called Audrey, who is a very pretty blonde a very squeaky, high-pitched voice, who works at the same shop, this flower shop, and that's why it's called Little Shop of Horrors. It's a little flower shop, and one day there's a total eclipse of the sun, and a plant just appears out of nowhere, and Seymour takes it home, and it turns out to be a bloodthirsty, mean green mother from outer space. <laughs> and I'm mad! Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just a crazy, crazy film. I love the music in this leads the story like a traditional musical should, but I really well and truly do love this film for all its insanity. Uh, so Rick Moranis' um, Seymour Krelborn, he is, you know, gaining all this attention for discovering this plant, and the flower shop, which is in disrepute before, now comes into its own, now that he puts the flower in the window, and everybody seems to want to take a look at it. Um, it's set in the in the downtown suburbs, like or not suburbs, the downtown rough areas of like uh, Skid Row, as it's called, uh, in New York City. And the way it's done, the on-set design, the production design, like for the '80s, is amazing. It's very classic Hollywood backlot sort of stuff. Even though I think it's filmed at Pinewood Shepperton Studios, I want to say. I think I saw a post about that before. It's a interesting film because the plant gets bigger and bigger and Seymour calls the plant Audrey 2. So it's the second Audrey after the original one, which he fancies. But the evil plant is voiced by Levi Stubbs, a legendary singer of the Four Tops. Uh, and he delivers such a great performance <laughs> as the plant. It's just amazing. Uh, I think it's something to be experienced for oneself. You need to watch it yourself to really truly understand it and really think, Do you know what? This is a crazy film. I'm just going to go with it. It's a love story of boy next door, meets girl, nearly loses girl, and there's two versions. There's the director's version and the theatrical cut. Which one you want to watch, you decide. The theatrical cut is much more of a happy ending. The director's cut is far more closer to what they originally wanted. So whichever one you want to watch, it's available on Blu-ray, so check that out. Uh, My favourite song from this film is the prologue, where we get to be introduced to Chiffon, Crystal, uh, I can't remember the third one's name, but basically the three sort of Supreme-esque girls, so like the Diana Ross and the Supremes kind of, these backing singers, but they're in their own element as well. They are amazing. They have little, they are narrators throughout the entire film, and they bracket every single moment with little haunting vocals, and I love their, you know, they sing Little Shop of Horrors, which is the prologue, in the opening of the film, and I truly love their sassiness, and, you know, they play actual school kids in the film, and then they transform into these lovely three beautiful divas who sing accompanying vocals for various story points during the film. Uh, But then the other thing I do like, I love Downtown, the song Downtown Skid Row, which is a ballad of melancholic, but also depressing, but also uplifting musical nature, where the whole cast of Skid Row come together uh, and they sing very triumphantly how they're going to escape Skid Row and how rubbish life is there, but it's somewhat uplifting in that final note. And that's right at the beginning of the film as well, And obviously, like I said, a mean green mother from outer space. Now I'm mad. It's such a catchy song. (laughs) The the bits that the plant sings are just ludicrous and crazy, but so amazing, all in one. So, you know, by all means, keep an eye on that. A brilliant film. Personally, original ending versus theatrical release. I I like the epicness of the original ending, but the theatrical release gives you closure, but also has a nice little miniature cliffhanger for impending doom at the end. I'll let you guys discover that yourself. Somewhere Green, which Audrey sings, is where she has this fantasy and she dreams of living in a better home and this very traditional classic stereotype of a white picket fence. American home with Seymour and her children and having like local family uh, families come over a bit like um a bit like the women's clubs that they have in um Edward Scissorhands, the Avon lady and her friends the way they sort of all gather together in that stereotypical uh women's meeting kind of thing uh, she imagines that perfect life for herself and that song the way she sings it's such a good vocal from her it's just such a lovely it makes me cry every time it genuinely does Uh, And, you know, I just, it gets me every time I I watch it. It's such a depressing yet very sort of saddening and happy song all in one go. Uh, And then obviously you've got Steve Martin in the middle playing a dentist. And John Candy makes an appearance. You know, it's a mental film. I think it needs to be seen to be believed, along with the giant plant puppet. (laughs) Um, But moving on, number four. Arguably, I don't know why this isn't my number one pick, but to be fair, I think I know why it is. Um, West Side Story, the 1961 version of the film. Not the 2020 remake, or 2021 remake as it were, because when it came out. But I just think that the film itself is a piece of art. It's gone from the 1957 musical to this 1961 film, which won Oscars. Rita Moreno is my character highlight as the character of Anita. And you've got obviously Richard Beamer, Rust Hamblin, and the late, great, amazing Natalie Wood as Maria. So many good songs that loads of people know and love. Maria, Tonight, The Jets song, I love all of those. But for me personally, all uh, oh, The Dance of the Gym, you get The Star-Crossed Lovers. Because, you know, West Side Story, for anyone who doesn't know it, is based on Romeo and Juliet. It's a musical version of Romeo and Juliet, but in set in New York with the gang, sort of, Puerto Ricans versus, like, the New York Americans, the Jets and the Sharks against each other, and that sort of star-crossed lovers divide, like the Capulets and the other people in Romeo and Juliet. Like, just, I just think that the film itself is a piece of art. I appreciate the cinematography so much from this. They had to dig a pit to get the low-angle shot of Bernardo and the Sharks and the Puerto Ricans to get that lovely pose which i'm sure i've posted lots of times on instagram and the socials i love that the they also had a big massive if you look at behind the scenes pictures of this film big massive rigging to get the high angle shots on the streets of new york it was absolutely perfect and you get to see elements of new york which aren't around anymore they darker areas of new york and obviously some of it's done on the sound stage as well for replication reasons but at the end of the day new york city is at the heart of this and I think for me i have three songs that i love the prologue which it starts off with a click (coughs) just in the distance and you hear like whistling and the entire visuals of that is for the film it's so cinematic you get to see new york from up above you get to see these lovely bird's eye view shots of the city and then we slowly come in and we meet the jets and the sharks and no one sings or anything but we get to experience this gang warfare in a very silent movie style fashion, really, in a way. And I love it. And that's my joint number for both of them. Uh, the song America, I like to be in America, <laughs> from the Sharks. Rita Moreno's song, absolutely perfect, hands down. Best amazing song ever. Uh, Geofer Scrop Key is another highlight for me. I love that as well. And the romantic numbers are great as well. But for me, cool stay cool boy so the song called by the jets is a very intense one with an intense history of behind the scenes filmmaking because there's legend has it that they had people who were physically exhausted the actors were exhausted from the dance routines that they were doing and the amount of times they had to do it because they weren't getting it right according to choreographer um jerome robbins who literally pushed and pushed and pushed the cast to their absolute limits so it's it's a film with a lot of history and i'd love to do an actual in-depth piece about it someday but The West Side Story of 1961 is amazing, but yeah, New York from the helicopter footage in the prologue is just breathtaking. It's epic and amazing. I absolutely love it. It's my personal favourite, and again, I don't know why it's not my number one, but I absolutely love it. Moving on swiftly, this one's just a quick one, but Rent is at number three, the 2005 film. I've already mentioned a lot about Jonathan Larson already, but the Netflix film Tick, Tick, Boom, slowly really closely associated with this based on the stage player the same name a lot of the original cast members from the broadway production are actually in the film so that's a benefit to this as well you know original stars in the film including Adina Menzel who is the voice of Elsa for any Disney fans out there or Rachel's mum in Glee uh, and it's a really powerful message of you know a moment in time the AIDS crisis and I think it's set in the early 1990s I want to say 1990 to 1991 the film set written by Jonathan Larson the songs have that same vibe and feel as Tick Tick Boom and for me my favorite songs I have too many but La Vie M," there's A and B parts to it because there's a song in between uh, but La Vie M" is my you yeah, know it's a real epic Bohemian rant about society and what's wrong with the world and how people should listen up and fight AIDS and stuff like that. But then I also, everybody loves Seasons of Love, which is very theatrical because it opens up with, in the film, with everybody, the, the I think it's the, the eight main cast members, they stand on stage and they sing the song to you, but it's shot so cinematically and so simply that you get that lovely chill on the edge of your spine when watching it. And then after that, I think Finale B really gets me as well as my number one highlight, because it's the end of the film and it really does its job well of bringing everything together, all the hardcore emotions, the the love, the death, the birth of new friendship and love and everything like that. And it's a song that accompanies a film, which Mark Cohen, the guy who makes documentary films and... Uh, films the goings on of the his friends and his small group of friends in New York City and what it's like for them. The film that he has made, it's like a load of footage put together on like cine, like Super 8 millimeter film, and the song, they're singing it as they're watching it and they're remembering the good times they had and the memories that they shared with people who are now no longer with them and it, there's only us, they'll always be us, that kind of thing, that sense of togetherness of no matter what divides us in the getting there, the journey was so fun and, you know, life is a journey. And that's kind of why the film is split into, like, there's A and B parts for Seasons of Love A and B, Love Ebo M A and B, Finale A and B. It's the songs, they're split as if they're as a metaphor for life that split down into two halves, the beginning and the end and a whole lot of middle. But at the end of the day, that's, you know, the issues of the AIDS crisis in the 1990s in New York City are really raised in this, in an emotional and very impactful way. So, Rent, 2005 film, definitely check it out. Number two, I've already mentioned Sir Alan Parker already, but I will mention him again. The 1980 film, uh, not the TV series, not the rubbish 2009 remake, but Fame, the 1980 film. It's one of those ones where it defines or defies, should I say, what the musical genre can do and is. And it's not because it's all singing or dancing, like Singing in the Rain, or even Rent, where everything is sung to express the emotions. The music is very much embedded. It's very close to one of those 80s movies that just has songs in it, and then they made a musical later about it, like Dirty Dancing and Footloose. People consider them musicals, but really they're just films with really good soundtracks that have key punctual moments. Whereas Fame, you have moments where they sing, and moments where the songs are integrated just in the background, as soundtrack. You know, is it okay if I call you mine? I've mentioned that on another episode before when I've cited Fame, is a beautifully shot musical moment, and with a lot of gritty realism in it. Hot Lunch Jam, that's the same as well. You know, it's a performing arts school. This film is set in a performing arts school in New York City, Lots of creative types getting together and jamming at lunchtime. Uh, You know, is it okay if i call you mine? It's a solitary moment with a character called Montgomery, one of the many kids that we follow in this journey throughout their school years at this performing arts school. But then we get moments like Fame, the song, it's just, it's played on speakers and people just dance to it because it's in the scene. Out Here on My Own is probably, I'd say, my favourite song slash sequence next to the fame sequence where you see all the kids dancing to the song. But Out Here on My Own is truly a good, captivating musical moment, because it is musical because she bursts out into song. This is Irene Cara, who sings the title track of Fame, and also does flash dance later in a couple of years' time after this film. She really opens her soul up to the cinematic audience, and, well, Bruno, the other character who she's friends with, And also ultimately his dad, who's in the back row, hiding in the auditorium that they're performing in. But Out Here on My Own is probably the most emotional of the load, then I'd say. And Fame is my favourite song overall. And the story structure is really simple and easy, effective to follow, because you go from auditions freshman year to junior year to senior year. And you really get to... there's so many characters, but you get to follow a great span of character development in all these different storylines love actually really isn't original when it comes to following multiple storylines because fame did it first in my opinion they did it first i mean other places did it first as well but fame i think really capitalized on the popular side of multiple storylines multiple characters all leading to one direction and that's the graduation from this performing arts school and proving whether these kids are ready for the real world and what it's like in show business. But finally, in at number one, my ultimate favourite film of my musical top 10 list. So, is from 1978, came out a year after one of the actor's big breakout roles, or at least one of them anyway. He starred in Carrie in 1976, He'd starred in Saturday Night Fever in 1977, and then to finish off the hat trick, we now go to Greece because what we know is Greece is the word. <laughs> Very cheesy, I know, but for me personally, I grew up with Greece. I grew up with the Greece soundtrack. I used to listen to it on the CD in the car with my mum and dad all the time, and it's truly one of those really toe-tapping really fun musicals, and it's great to see live on a stage, but the film itself is truly amazing. It's, you know, it's John Travolta, Olivia Newton-John, Stockard Channing as, you know, the amazing Rizzo, you know, the hardcore badass girl with a heart of gold and with a lot of sort of trouble in her life, and not really many people understand her, but she's just, the leader of the Pink Ladies, and she seems a bit of a horrible person, but she's not really, so uh, there's a great bit of character development from her. Classic romance with Danny and Sandy of Travolta and uh, Newton John. I think the songs speak for themselves. This is where the the story is so simple that it's boy meets girl, Oh, you can't be part of our gang. It's very childish, high schooly style settings, but then you get this lovely cascade of music and it's just so fun the songs are so good like people wonder why people don't like Grease too it's not because of the story because the story is practically the same with a few alterations as the original Grease. but the songs weren't as good so the songs in greece is yes, greece by frankie valley of frankie valley in the four seasons uh, Grease lightning hopelessly devoted to you a whimsical little number there uh, those magic changes which is one of the many ones from the prom scene there's so many songs which aren't sung by the cast but are so rich to listen to because they're embedded in the soundtrack and you can listen to them as just a standalone track on your you know playlist or something or on an album and they would be perfectly fine to listen to the same goes for you know all the original songs in greece you get that sense of magic and electrifying musical sort of experience really. And for me Grease Lightning is my favourite musical number because of the fantasy element of it. We go together at the end of the film, is a good fit for the film, it's, you know, brings the cast together, it's a happy ending, but I do think that Grease Lightning, you know, they go into this imaginary car workshop which is much more cleaner, (laughs) more spanking and new than the actual one they're in the really hunking great piece of dust that is their school car workshop and we get to see their dream fulfilled and you know the ultimate grease lightning and the song is so catchy it's played at so many weddings i mean i know it it is in the uk so (laughs) at least the grease mega mixes but you know that boy meets girl classic romance it's the heart of any musical and musicals at the end of the day are a romantic thing there's always going to be some sort of romanticism even if it's a nostalgic one or a melancholic one, like, you know, the end of La La Land, it's not a happy ending, but romance is involved. You look at any musical, even if the musical isn't about a romance, so Tick, Tick, Boom's not really about a romance as such, but it's a romance and dedication to the art of theatre, and musical making, and storytelling, and at the end of the day, that's what a musical is, storytelling from a romantic or romanticized point of view, so that's All my top 10, really, of the musicals. So I'll just give you a quick recap there. So we got Singing in the Rain at number 10, La La Land at number nine, Rocky Horror Picture Show at number eight, Bugsy Malone at number seven, Tick Tick Boom at number six, Little Shop of Horrors at number five, West Side Story, the 1961 version, at number four, Rent at number three, the original 1980 fame at number two, and then at number one, It's Grease thank you so much for listening guys i know that's been a very big episode but that's my recommendations for my top 10 picks for my favorite musicals and if you have any that you love personally let me know i know on our instagram we did a poll not long ago some questions um, several people said Phantom of the Opera, uh, Les Mis, um, some of them I haven't actually watched yet, Les Mis for instance, Slam watched it, sorry I'm guilty, uh, <laughs> Phantom of the Opera, the 2004 version with Gerard Butler, um, Oliver, the original 1968 Oliver, I think Infinite Film Club mentioned that, I want to say it was you guys that gave me that suggestion, uh, and there's so many more that I could go through, and say, you know, um, people class, you know, Flashdance as a musical as well, and arguably, you know, there's a musical version of it, but it's in that canon of musical 80s films that are driven by a hardcore soundtrack. And also All That Jazz, shout out to Ad Lindsay who gave us the recommendation of All That Jazz, the self-referential biopic, I don't know, biopic kind of, but fictional account of Bob Fosse's time, choreographing a, a show and directing a film, and, yeah, it's an insane one, that one, 1979, go and check all that jazz out as an honourable mention. But that's all I'm going to say for now, guys, so I'm going to step out and leave you guys with my top 10 list of my favourite movie musicals, so that's a wrap on Take 97 of Film Podcast, the movie musicals edition of the podcast, and I will see you on the next episode, and I look forward to hearing your opinions. Thank you very much, guys, and I'll see you later.